Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 139, Uncollecting 2, The Clutter Strikes Back. Hello and welcome to episode 139 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I am your host, Tom Panneries. Well, it's January. January. Yeah, so that means we're truly in the dead of winter, but we've also got that whole new year, new you thing going. And yes, I'm trying to get more exercise because I've gained something like 30 pounds in the last three years, but that's less of a New Year's resolution of mine this year and an initiative to not have my doctor bitch at me when I go for my physical in March. Anyway, that's beside the point. I bring up the idea of improvements and resolutions at the beginning of the show today because this episode is a sequel to one I did back in 2019 about a New Year's resolution that I made that January and actually kept. Well, kind of kept. I'll get into the details about all of that later. So that resolution was about clearing out the clutter in my life, especially when it came to things I had not read, watched, or listened to. I called it the uncollecting. And the idea was that I had a huge list of comics, books, television shows, movies, and podcast episodes that were laying dormant and taking up space in my house or on my devices. Not only that, a good number of them had actually never been used, so to speak. And what I decided to do was go through them and then rate them on a scale of keep, sell, donate, or trash so that I could ultimately clear things away. If you want to listen to me talk about that initiative in more detail, go back and listen to episode 96 of the show, where I talk about the uncollecting as well as an episode of the Oprah Winfrey show that kind of inspired it. The blog has now been around for four years. I haven't been always consistent about reading or viewing or then re- then, then reviewing everything and posting, but I have been consistent enough that I have a running record of what I've been able to accomplish, which is, well, it's complicated. And I'll be getting into what I have been doing for the past four years, the ups and the downs of it all, in the second half of this show. Because if you may have guessed by the title of this episode, things have not always been perfect. In fact, in some cases, they've gotten worse. But first, I'm going to cover some media and look at how some shows, videos, and books take an approach to helping people clear out their clutter, whether it be picking themselves up or picking up after someone else. And you'll find that segment after the break. The lights are all down. Why 
you little... Now, did you know about this? Oh, of course. But what do you care? You don't love Howard anyway. But that has nothing to do with it. How much did he settle on you? I made Howard pay for what he wants. You made him pay for what he doesn't want. Why, you filthy... Don't beast. start calling names, you Park Avenue playgirl. I know a lot more words than you do. I was told you were clever. You must be. To keep Stephen from seeing how cheap you are. Don't give me that innocent bit. I do kicks, you platoons. We both knew a good thing when we saw it. I mean, it's not like I was deliriously happy every single day of this marriage, you know? But did I screw around? No. I could have, by the way. I really could have. Because men have come on to me plenty. All right, once or twice. But I thought about it because this just in. 13 years of sex with the same man can be a little bit boring, all right? I mean, Stephen had his bag of tricks, and I knew them all. But did I complain? Did I go out and bang the Federal Express guy? Cause baby, now we got bad blood. You know it used to be mad love. So take a look what you've done. Cause baby, now we got bad blood. Hey! Now we got problems. Dear Reader, Season 2, join me, Stella, as I look at the 1936 play The Women by Claire Booth Luce and its three cinematic adaptations from 1939, 1956, and 2008. Does the play highlight the complicated aspects of female friendship or display the cattiness of women when in competition with each other and with time? Listen and find out. Coming soon to the Fire & Water Podcasting Network. That's French for love. I'm really excited. My dad wants to teach me more and more about our business, but he's not used to letting go. <laughs> By the time I get home, I don't have much energy left for my family or for myself. I wake up with the mission of helping somebody else. It's just so hard to think about me. Decide what kind of life you would like to lead. You are important. Hopefully, Marie can help me. I didn't think it was going to be so impactful. We got work to do. We need Marie Kondo. Learning more and more about myself is so it'll get overwhelming. What did I you say? worked so hard, I can tell. Oh my god, it's <laughs> <is> my daughter. <laughs> I'm ready for it. I'm excited for it. <gasps> this is amazing. Go get what you want. Go get what you want. What you want. I have to admit that I missed Marie Kondo's second Netflix show sparking joy with Marie Kondo when it dropped in early 2021. 
I had seen it on my home screen and either myself or my wife had saved it to our playlist, but then it wound up just sitting there, forgotten, in the pile of shows that we'd saved and meant to get around to, but never did because there were years worth of bake-off to watch, rewatch, watch again, and then rewatch again. So in addition to immediately available podcast research, the show was part of my uncollecting because it was on my list. You know, even though stuff on streaming or digital comics and ebooks are kind of lower on the priority ladder for me because they don't physically take up space in my house. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. I'm going to circle back to Marie Kondo. So if you remember the sensation that her books and then first Netflix show from 2019 generated, you remember that Marie Kondo is all about teaching people how to tidy up, focusing on organizing a space and helping them make decisions on what items to keep by asking them if those items, quote, spark joy. It's a concept that sounds a little corny, at least to want to be cool kids like myself, because everything positive or sincere sounds corny to a want to be cool kid like myself. But really, it makes a lot of sense. It actually works, too. I'll talk a little bit more personally about this later in the episode, but you can grab a DVD and answer the question, will I ever watch this again? Pretty easily. Furthermore, you can certainly convince yourself that at some point you're going to sit down and pop in American Pie 2, even though you have not watched that movie in a good decade and a half. But that idea of a spark of joy is a little different. If I hold up my DVD of Empire Records and ask myself if it sparks joy, I can certainly say yes, because that movie has been a total comfort food movie for me for years. No, I... It's been a while since I watched it, but based on the number of times I quoted it or listened to the songs off the soundtrack or, you know, having a copy of it physically in my house makes me feel good. American Pie 2 has its moments, but is a mediocre sequel to a movie that I found hilarious in 1999, but only find funny in moments and really cringy in others. By the way, I actually have offloaded my VHS of the unrated versions of American Pie and American Pie 2. Remember when unrated was a for like a sex comedy was like the big selling point? Anyway, I unloaded those a few years ago because I didn't see the need for them and they, well, they didn't spark joy. So that concept is really useful. Now, as for Marie Kondo's show, there's not a lot of difference between what she does on her first series and what she does on this one. I guess the one big difference is that in the three 45-minute episodes that are on Netflix, she goes to people at their businesses as well as their homes. In fact, the first episode is only at a business. It's a father and son garden center that's located in Los Angeles. And the second one is at a coffee shop in LA as well as the owner's home office. The third episode does involve a church in LA, but it's most like the first series in that it focuses more on her client's home it was the weaker of the three because although everyone in the client's family was lovely and she never once fought anyone on a decision, I felt like it was kind of a rerun of stuff I'd already seen, especially since I found the tidying up work angle to be very interesting. After all, while cleaning up or straightening up one's work has similarities to one's home, there's the added factors of customers and having to make money with a business. Neither the coffee shop nor the garden center were performing poorly, but you could tell that the owners were hustling and keeping things as good as they could, you know, but it was taking its toll. 
Plus, each had become a site of organized chaos. If you walked into either place of business, you wouldn't know that there was a back room or under-the-counter clutter or completely disorganized bins. And they both look like pleasant places to go. But appearances can be deceiving, and both business owners talked about how tiring it was to work through their disorganization and put up that front. And I can actually relate to that. You know, I don't own a small business, but I do run a classroom, and it can be really tough to put up that professional, joyful teacher front when you're a complete mess. Okay, I'm not joyful. But my work area is pretty much a disaster, and I often find myself in the midst of some sort of chaos as I try to juggle everything that I have to do for this job and do it during contract hours, which is downright impossible, by the way. And I'm not saying that to be a martyr. I've been keeping myself to my contract hours plus about one more each day because I come into work about an hour early every morning so I can leave right at the bell. And for every five things I get done at work, there's at least two that I leave unfinished. Not good for someone with my level of anxiety. Just saying. Anyway, I wish that there was more of this show or more people like Marie Kondo on television. Not only because I like her ideas and like watching the work get done, but because the show is pleasant and not all about her. Reality television, especially cable reality television, thrives on conflict, even if the show is not built around conflict. You have a show like, say, Top Chef, and you're going to have a lot of ego in the room. It will generate tension. You get into the whole Real Housewives universe, and well, you know, I don't need to tell you the conflict is the star of that show. But do we need a conflict to drive a show about someone cleaning a cluttered space? I remember the Oprah episode I talked about a few years ago when they, I did my last Uncollecting show. And there was quite a bit of conflict between the woman who was tasked with cleaning out her house, her family, and the guy hired to do the whole thing. But I think I found that interesting because of the novelty at the time. I hadn't watched a lot of shows like that. And to the Oprah Winfrey show producer's credit, they tried not to present everything as a spectacle to gawk at. Yes, the whole we fill the warehouse with your crap thing was a bit over a top, and there were a few kind of Dr. Phil-esque tough love moments. But for the most part, they seemed to want to answer the question of, how does it get like this? Plus, her children were frustrated and even mad at her, and we as the audience felt that coming from a genuine place. Translate that over to your average caper reality show based on cleaning and or home improvement, and what you wind up with is at least one confrontation that threatens to get shouty and a host or personality who centers themselves instead of the family or the client. Maybe it's because I cringe every time I see Joanna and Chip Gaines on my television, but I don't know. But while Marie Kondo certainly has a personality and that comes through in the show, I can see she wants her clients to be the center of attention especially when she's like giving them homework and they have to do it. But really, the focus is on decluttering in the moment, tidying up, picking yourself up as opposed to having someone do it for you. I'm sure that there are people who have messy houses or deal with clutter who would wish that they could either snap their fingers or hire someone to clean everything for them. But I also think that deep down, so many of us, and even the people on a show like that hosted by Marie Kondo, Know that such magic doesn't solve the root of the problem. And decluttering yourself was the topic of one of two books I read about it last year. Funny enough, I wasn't planning on reading anything about hoarding, clutter, or cleaning. 
I think that Brett was interested in looking up psychology books in the library, and I noticed a couple of books on the shelf related to the topic, so I decided to check them out. The first one is a memoir called Year of No Clutter. It's by Eve O. Schaub. The book apparently came from a blog where Schaub was uh, tracking her decluttering project in real time. The book itself came out in 2017. The year in question was around 2015, 2016. So it's several years ago, and uh, this is the second book based on one of her blogging projects, the first being 2011's Year of No Sugar. I found the book to be a quick read. I was actually glad I didn't have to go back and read years of blog posts, the reverse chronological nature of which makes scrolling really tedious, by the way. Although I used to do that in the office all the time. I'll just go back to the beginning of somebody's blog and like read through until I finally caught up. But again, I had a lot more time on my hands at work because I was always waiting for something to f- somebody to finish something I, we were working on. Anyway, beside the point, back on track, Schaub, the author of uh, the, you know, the Year of Clutter, can be a little annoying in places, but overall it's a valuable piece because it's an account of someone who was, quote, normal, meaning living and fairly average suburban life. And yes, I get it. How dare I declare anything, especially that normal. But really, there's something very ordinary about the life she and her family have. So it doesn't come off as a case study. Furthermore, it makes her relatable, which is what you sometimes want out of a memoir like this. As interesting as it is to read about the more extreme side of clutter and hoarding, and the other book that I read certainly highlighted that, The idea that she's just like any of us was certainly appealing. Schaub's project has a built-in narrative that's easy to engage. She's actually a relatively neat person. She keeps a house that's really neat, except for one room. And I guess some people might refer to that as a storage room or a junk room. She describes it as the hell room. And it's this huge room. I think it's supposed to be like an extra bedroom in the house or something. Either way, it's full of all sorts of stuff. So the story of cleaning the hell room takes place over the course of an entire year, involving not just her, but her entire family. In some ways, of course, you get to say that she kind of drags them into it, but there's also a well-covered examination of how each member of her family, both her husband and her kids, deal with the hell room, Eve's project, and all of the stuff. What also makes her likable and the book relatable is how willing she is to admit her own faults and pass judgment on herself. Sure, it gets a little too self-deprecating sometimes, but there's a lot of self-awareness. This includes discussing her rationales for keeping certain items or the way that a lot of the objects had history. In addition, she dives into her family history and especially into the issues that she has with her father, who is a major hoarding problem that goes way beyond just a hell room. In a year of no clutter, Schaub intermixes her project with some research into the issue of clutter and hoarding and offers up observations and commentary. She has a pretty good handle of what's become a privileged problem in a way, or at least something that has to be germane to a highly consumerist society. It's not just an American thing, of course, but I think that we seem to be the best at it. Or is it worst at it? Hmm. At any rate, I appreciated a real-time look at someone trying to come to terms with the pile they've almost been buried under and how hard it really is to make such a huge change. The other book I read was called Stuff, Compulsive Hoarding and the Meaning of Things by Randy O. Frost and Gail Stickety. 
Published in 2010, it's a book written by two psychologists and academics who have been studying hoarding for the better part of 30 years. And doesn't just tell stories of people who have compiled massive amounts of things, but gets into the psychology behind hoarding. And that is really, really complicated. The authors take a look at depression, OCD, and other things that we, especially in our popular culture, have associated with hoarding. They also share many people's experiences. Of course, that's the draw. I cannot deny that part of looking at this whole topic is the compulsion to rubberneck. But unlike Eve Schaub, who had a pretty rational view of things, the stories inside stuff are what you would have seen on that Oprah episode, as well as what you might have seen on Hoarders or another show like that. Many of them are mentally ill, and a number of the stories are frustrating. Viewing those stories through the lens of compassion is also very hard because of the frustration coming off of their family members, the children and siblings who desperately want them to get help and fight them with them about it. We see in a number of case studies the story of the horde, the intervention, the clean-out, which is often done by a crew who sometimes have to wear hazmat suits, and in some cases is on the behalf of not a family, but like the Department of Health. And we also see the follow-up. Because we don't always get on that on the shows we watch or the blogs we read. Sparking Joy with Marie Kondo does a one-week-later follow-up with a couple of people there, but... Not a whole heck of a lot can change over the course of a week, and I find myself more interested in the long-term effects. Did they keep themselves tidy? Did they revert back to old habits? Did they stay in business? Now, I hate not to give people the benefit of the doubt, but considering how badly I tend to regress into old habits, I wasn't surprised when I read about people re-hoarding. Also, it is a chronic issue. Having someone clean out your house is not going to automatically change you, no matter how nice the reveal on a cable or Netflix reality show will say. The people in this book feel controlled by their piles and by their heaps, and they are fixated on everything having some sort of meaning. Either that box of stuff has sentimental meaning, or it actually will be useful one day. And I think we understand that because there are things that we hold on to that are useful. You know, like bottles of lotion you've had forever, or a small appliance that is old as crap but still works. I have a 20-year-old waffle maker. It still makes waffles. Like, I'll hold on to it until it dies. You know, there are those things that we, we do hold on to. But then there are those things that the person has determined has, quote, another use, even if it's an empty jar or a scrap of something. I think it's very common, by the way, among people who grew up or had their formative years during the Great Depression. I think there are a number of elderly hoarders featured in this book as well. I'd like to see if there's a similar type of mentality among people who were raised in certain conditions of poverty, too, but are no longer in poverty in their, um, in their older years. Does having to make do with something lead you to trying to make do later in life when you don't have to? You know, it ties into control, which is what we see on display in the book, and is kind of a trope that shows this. When crews would come to clean these people out, the people would get defensive and even go as far as to sneak things back into the house. This would also lead them to re-hoarding, especially when the clean-outs are forced upon them. One part of the book follows a social worker and a crew who have a combative relationship with someone who is 
in a New York City condo and has been hoarding. They wind up forcing a clean out of the place because it's a hazard to others in the building. But while that works, it's only temporary and the person starts hoarding again. It is a spectacle, but the way it's presented in the book gives you a good amount of compassion. Like I've said, rubbernecking is a huge part of why I read the book. And a reality TV culture, unfortunately, does feed that. It always has, though. I mean, we want to feel normal, and these shows make us feel better about ourselves. I think the authors knew that Spectacle was a hook anyway, especially considering the book opens with the story of the Collier brothers. These were two brothers in Harlem in the 30s. One was disabled, and his brother was the caretaker. They were hoarders and also paranoid that someone would break in and steal their stuff. So what they did was booby-trap the piles in their apartment. Unfortunately, the non-disabled brother sprung his own trap and then got caught underneath one of the many piles. He eventually died, and the disabled brother eventually starved to death as a result. But whereas a YouTuber would tell us the story by just simply reading the Wikipedia article at us, as so many do, to the point where I'm pretty sure they just use an AI-generated voice instead of recording their own voiceovers for these things. Anyway. So as opposed to like reading the Wikipedia page at us, the authors of stuff go along on the present day cases they highlight and they do the follow-up. So they follow up on this as a case study as well. They really get into depth about this as opposed to just spitting facts. And we really do see what happens to all of these people beyond that moment or beyond the facts of the story. And, and I find that important. Of course, it might be because I've always been fascinated with where are they now aspects of documentary subjects, but still you have to be curious as to what happened after the camera stopped rolling or the people left, right? And the other piece of empathy and compassion in the book stuff is the way that the authors describe these hoarding habits objectively and with a certain amount of, well, I don't know if dignity is the right word, but they certainly aren't telling us to look and laugh at these assholes or anything like that. I mean, they are purely academic. They're psychologists. They're academics, and they're taking that lens and applying it there, but not in a cold way. You can see that they care about their subject in addition to wanting to uh, be very uh, educational about what's going on here. They carefully explain how hoarding habits often happen gradually. And can, they can take years to make a, reach a critical point. It might start with personality quirks that metastasize and eventually affect a person's ability to function as well as their relationship with family members. We hear about the way they become a problem, not just when it is a problem. We see how family members try to intervene early but often wind up having relationships heavily damaged. We see other family members protect the hoarding relative. And watching it all from the page is tough, especially when I can relate to the, quote, don't throw it out, we might need that mentality, and the guilt and regret that sometimes comes with it, especially when that theoretical day you need it actually does come. So it's about intervention and treatment, and it's often done by somebody else. But then there are the times we see the someone else doing the clean out, and it might be one of those things that a hoarder left behind. In the first episode I did on the uncollecting, I talked about the YouTube channel Curiosity Inc., which I got into when the toast Alex Archibald bought, cleaned out, and renovated a hoarded house that became known as the Potter's House. I have been following him on and off since then, and he's taken care of a few other houses, some of which were owned by people who have passed on. 
Now, he hasn't outright bought the property like he did with Mary Borgstrom's house. Instead, what he does now is tends to pay a lump sum for all of the stuff in the house. And he agrees to work on a timetable to have the place cleaned out and cleaned up and then turn the keys over back to the owner or whoever's flipping it or whatever. He is essentially employing a crew and he gets to keep whatever he wants and he tends to throw a lot away and donate a bunch of other stuff and then auction off to see if he can get his money back on his investment. I think in some cases he's done minor repairs to the house. I remember one house he had his handyman buddy Hans tackle the job of replumbing a kitchen sink. But for the most part, it's just watching him go through the houses, find random stuff, decide what to keep, donate, sell, and trash, and then even sorting and selling the stuff at auction up in Edmonton. I don't have a specific episode of the show or series to cover, but I wanted to bring it up again because I cannot recommend it enough. Alex seems like an incredibly nice and caring person, and he brings a lot of that into his work. If you're interested in a series of videos much like The Potter House, I would recommend The Musician's House from a couple of years ago. This is where he cleaned out the house of a woman named Madame Rack, who was a musician and piano teacher. And I would also recommend a series from last year where he cleaned out another house. Um, I don't think it has a formal name yet, although a few commenters were calling it The Predator House because of a huge life-size predator statue that these people had in their garage. And that does it. Uh, at least for the pop culture segment. But one question remains. I'm four years into the uncollecting. What have I been doing? How have I been doing? Well, I'm going to take another break. And when I get back, I'm going to talk about my successes, my setbacks, my learning experiences, and where I'm going with my uncollecting. Stick around. In all his decades of publishing history, one event has affected Superman more than any other. Worlds lived, worlds died, and that was only the beginning. Superman was never the same. Presenting Superman in Crisis. Available weekly at johnreadscomics.com. So how has it been going? Um, yeah. I guess I should start this segment by reiterating the original intent of the project. I had all of this media that I had owned but I never used. So like I decided as a New Year's resolution in 2019 to try and use it all and really try and not buy anything new. Now, it's been four years and I'm still at it. I've had successes. For instance, I really did zero out my comic book back issue pile before I wound up buying some more. But I've also had my share of setbacks and failures. I've learned some things along the way. And in the interest of making this easy to listen to, if you're still listening, I broke those things out into a list of the top five lessons from this venture so far. Things that I definitely am going to take with me as I keep going. So the first one is... I'm not scoring points for what I own. I mean, maybe someone might be impressed if I showed them some shelf porn or something, but when you really think about it, there's no sort of award for the mass accumulation of this sort of stuff. And while some of the things that I own are meaningful and they'd be the last things I would get rid of, my Wolfman Perez New Teen Titans run, for instance, I know that in many cases, getting all of something just brings some sort of momentary hit or high instead of 
actual satisfaction, you know? But really, the idea that I'm somehow better because I have more has become less appealing as I've gotten older. And I found that I've started to become more of a reader and viewer instead of a collector. I know the two aren't mutually exclusive, of course, but with a possible exception or two, I can tell you that I find myself more into enjoying what I have rather than considering what might be a museum piece that I'm going to buy. And that leads me to number two on my list of lessons. Low grade or condition stuff is fun to get and easy to offload. Maybe this is Professor Allen's fault. But the reason I've been buying back issues at conventions or hitting up cheap bin sales at my LCS is that most of the comics I've gotten from them are A, cheap, and B, cheap because overall they're not in the best condition. Yeah, some of them might be in fine, very fine condition, but for the most part, everything is a reading copy that isn't going to get me the big bucks on eBay. So if I decide that I'm not really interested in, say, reading anything beyond the stack of late 80s X-Factor I had gotten a quarter bin sale, and I don't want to keep those around, they can go into donation piles or even, dare I say it, the recycling bin. Although, truth be told, I haven't dropped too many comics into the recycling bin. Just a few comics written by someone whose name I'd rather not say. And a couple of very old books that had smelled so badly of mildew, reading them literally gave me a headache. Seriously, though, crap condition comics that I pick up because they look interesting and that you don't have electronic access to via, you know, Marvel Unlimited or DC Infinite or Comixology, well, those seem to be my bread and butter lately as far as collecting. I've been able to amass nearly full runs of Arak, Son of Thunder, Star Slayer, The Legend of the Jolly Roger, King Conan, and the now comics Terminator books for extremely cheap. Few or none of those are anything I've been able to find elsewhere, and it also makes the hunt worth it. Plus, I can check out genres other than superheroes without feeling like I'm blowing 20 bucks on a trade or $5 on a new issue. Now, once I have those runs completed, I'll you know reread them and then decide what I want to do with them. And that brings me to the fact that some things are harder to get rid of than others. The comics in bad conditions that I know I don't want to read again into the donation pile or the recycling bin. The movies I know I'm never going to watch again and don't really spark joy in life, goodwill. The books that I don't feel the need to hang on to anymore, well, if they're in good shape, the public library donation rack. If they're in bad shape, the recycling bin. Graphic novels I'm never going to read again, um, yeah, that seems to be the toughest one. Recently, I moved a bookcase from our upstairs office into the basement, and I assembled another bookcase so that I moved all my graphic novels and trades onto the two bookcases. They flanked the basement entertainment stand. It looks pretty cool among all of the geeky stuff, but there's one issue. I now have more graphic novels than I have shelf space. So I thought that I could probably get rid of some. This proved, though, to be a little harder than I thought, especially because there are so many that I have had for so long and I've read and reread. But then there are like original graphic novels that I bought because they looked interesting, read once, but I probably won't read them again. And this is where I decided to channel my inner Marie Kondo, and I did a quick sweep of the shelves to determine what doesn't spark joy. Was there anything I outright didn't like very much? Was there anything I liked at the time, but don't think I'll ever need to read again? Yeah, 
Funny enough, a lot of it was stuff I found that I found really spoke to me when I was like in my 20s, but I don't find as interesting now. Two works that I can think of off the top of my head are Alex Robinson's Box Office Poison and Kevin Smith's View of Skewniverse comics. Now, as far as Clerks the Movie is concerned, I still love it. I intend to watch Clerks 3 when I get the chance and maybe buy a copy of that and Clerks 2 if I like Clerks 3. But the Clerks comics to me were humorous at the time. They're still kind of funny, but they're not as dear to me as the films. The Jay and Silent Bob Chasing Dogma and Blunt Man and Chronic Trades have not aged particularly well, at least in my opinion. As far as box office poison, I actually had found this fairly recently in a cheap trade bin. And since I'd heard good things about it, I decided to pick it up for something like, it was like five or 10 bucks for a a graphic novel that ran for like five times that. It was good, but it had the same problems that films like Noah Baumbach's Kicking and Screaming has. And that's a film I watched last year and wrote about on the Uncollecting blog. It had at least one irritating and unlikable protagonist, and I was, well, too old to be reading it. Had this been 24, 23, 22 with me, I would have really, really enjoyed it and related to it. This just seemed, with the exception of one character who had a happy ending, and and I really liked him, Another character who is kind of the main was so immature and so self-centered. It just it got tiring. Even though I enjoyed the book, so I wasn't disappointed that I wasted time on it or anything. But I'm like, I don't think I'm gonna. When I when I picked it up off the shelf the other day, I was like, you know what? I'm never gonna read this again. And I put it aside. And I did that with several others. You know, I they went into a pile of giveaway slash selling books. Now, I haven't solved all of the overflow problems there, but at least I started, I kind of got out of my head the need to actually keep every single one of these things. And that's important because number four on my list is that I shouldn't beat myself up for a lapse in mission. I have perfectionist tendencies. I also seem to have this voice in my head that reminds me of every screw up or embarrassing moment or failure to complete something, or, well, whatever shortcoming it is, there's a reminder. It can really, really suck, too. Uh, Sometimes I'll be driving along and listening to a podcast or song in my mind, and my mind just... Sometimes I'll be driving along, I'll be listening to a podcast or song or something, and my mind rolls a six, passes by Marvin Gardens, and lands on that time that I did something clumsy in front of a girl, and it was really embarrassing, and my friends never let me hear the end of it. And by let me hear the end of it, it's not like, you know, for a few days they rapped me about it and like, no, they would bring it up years later. And these are people I don't really associate with anymore, but I mean, my brain has taken their place. My brain decides to critique everything I do. My brain decides to call me stupid for doing something 25 years ago or nitpick the methods by which I do certain tasks. You know, I start scooping coffee into the grinder in the morning. I put a dish towel over it to muffle the sound. And I hear, why are you doing it like that? I don't know, because it's fucking loud and it's 630 in the morning. And fuck you. That's why. I mean, but but anyway, it's neither here nor there. I'm going off on another tangent. The point of item number four to bring myself back to the first two paragraphs in the very first post of the uncollecting is 
I have an irrational fear of announcing that I am starting something. It doesn't matter what it is. I just don't like telling someone that I'm going to begin something new because I am afraid of having to answer to my inevitable failure to accomplish what I set out to do. The personal embarrassment that comes from facing any line of inquiry or conversation that begins with, quote, I thought you were going to, or quote, how's blank going, or quote, whatever, whatever happened to blank, can often be so overwhelming that I get paralyzed and decide not to even try. Now, granted, this isn't true for everything in my life. I have, after all, been able to accomplish things that I set out to do. But there are a number of times when I wanted to do something and put that out there only to have it go unfinished or unaccomplished for a variety of reasons. I know we all have those things in our lives. Usually they're New Year's resolutions. When I'm asked about such failures, I feel like I'm back in school and someone is comparing grades with me so they can feel better about beating the smart kid at something. Yes, I quoted an old blog post of mine, quoted myself just like a douchebag. But I did it to remind me and maybe you, of one of my more annoying hangups. And to say that as a journey of sorts, this is very personal. It's very much my own, even if I'm writing about it on a regular basis. And I have to acknowledge that there are going to be setbacks and that I shouldn't expect everything to be awesome all at once and that small steps are good steps. And that'll help me to segue to my final point about all of this that so much of this is actually tied to my mental health. When I started the Uncollecting blog, I didn't expect to be taking such a dive into my mental health. I'd been in therapy for maybe a year, and I was still unpacking a lot of whatever my anxiety and depression sent me on on a regular basis. I've unpacked a lot with my therapist than I do here, but I've noticed that sometimes the spending of money or accumulation of stuff will often coincide with times of great stress, serious anxiety, or even episodes of feeling depressed. I don't like to self-analyze, but I wonder if it has to do with something, some sort of modicum of control over my situation, or at the very least, a way to push back against it. Because I don't necessarily feel in control when I am buying a lot of things that I don't necessarily need, but it feels good. It happens especially around payday. Like, I just got paid and like, yeah, hookers and blow, man. And I know this is making me sound like an addict on a bad sitcom episode, but I don't have a problem, or at least yet. But I can see how it could become a problem or even an addiction. I can see myself and my own behavior on a micro level, how a hoarder can spawn. And yes, I'm centering myself here, but it's my show. Uh, really, though, um, when you can kind of see it and you decide to do something, I mean, isn't that the thing that's supposed to happen? But I've been doing this for four years, and, and it's not and the only reason I'm it's not the only reason I'm doing it for four years because like oh I saw signs of possibly being a hoarder, I got to fix myself. Yeah, honestly, on a fundamental level, I just want to get some of the stuff out of my house and. I figured why not have it be a creative in Denver. I am trying to quote use all these things because there is a little bit of guilt associated with buying a book and never reading it and giving it away. Buying a movie, never watching it and giving it away. Buying comics, never reading them, giving them away. You know, it's just there's I, it's like I feel like you at least have to use it at least once so that I can say that I got my money's worth. So that is kind of my little update of the uncollecting. I hope you enjoyed this episode, the first of 2023. If you're interested in leaving feedback, 
email me, comment on the Facebook post, hit me up on Twitter or Instagram. If you're interested in the Uncollecting as a project, my regular blogging about what I've been reading and, and some other insights into things, check me out on theuncollecting.com. Now, as for the next episode of the show, I'll be back next month with some comics. Specifically, I'm going to talk about what it was like reading and collecting Batman in the 90s. So come back for that. And until then, thanks for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. Yeah, I see it all, I have you before.